Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And continuing our very cool series of episodes talking to the exhibitors who won their respective groups at the AKC National Championship, I am here with Kent Boyles and Liz Oster, who are responsible for the German Shepherd Dog that won the herding group. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion loves helping pets get the care they need. That's why they're excited to announce that they've officially paid out over two billion, that's with a B, billion dollars in veterinary claims. That's two billion reasons for more tail wags and treats. That's 730,000 pets that got the care they needed. Trupanion would like to thank all of the owners and breeders who've trusted them over the last 22 years. If you're part of the Trupanion Breeder Support Program, don't forget to register your upcoming litters for their go-home day offers. That way you can send them home protected by Trupanion's world-class coverage. If you're not part of the program yet, what, what, what? it's completely free to join and lets you send your litters home with an offer for a full Trupanion insurance policy that waives the waiting periods. To learn more and to sign up, just visit my partner page at puredogtalk.com. So welcome, you guys. Hi. Hi. I am super excited to have this conversation. Been looking forward to this one for a while. So the way we do this is we do the 411. So the 411 is give a little background on yourself, how you got started, each of you. Kent, I'll let you go first. Liz, I know that you're going to try and duck it, but I'm going to make you do it too. Okay. All right. A little bit of background. How'd you get started in the sport? How'd you get to German Shepherd Dogs? A little bit of that. As I grew up, my grandfather had Chesapeake's Mm -hmm. and did field trial stuff, and he would take us grouse hunting with Mm -hmm. him. You know, we'd stumble along until we were 12 years old and were able to shoot the gun. And I was always just loved going to watch the dogs work and follow around, you know, stay behind Granddad with the gun and watch the dogs go. And But I'd always wanted a German Shepherd. So finally, oh, I guess I was 15 when I talked my mom into letting me get a purebred German Shepherd dog and wrote letters to different breeders out of, the, I guess it was Dog World magazine at the time. I was going through there and wrote letters to breeders and there was a guy Larry Jerome in northern Wisconsin that we decided that he contacted me and we talked and he was a pretty good salesman right so (laughs) so uh I talked him into giving me a ride up there and meeting Larry and the dogs and wound up getting a puppy and bringing home yeah so then after I got my driver's license, which that was, was like an about important a year, thing in our lives, right? You know, right? So like after I turned 16 and got a driver's license, I contacted him and was harping on him about coming to work for him in the summer times when I was out of, you know, I was in high school, worked for the summer times because I basically wanted to learn more about German shepherds because I thought in the back of my mind I wanted to breed 
I was thinking, well, maybe I'll breed, you know, one litter, a couple yeah. of litters in my lifetime. Yeah, right. So that's kind of how that got started. And how many litters are we in now? <laughs> yeah, well, few. Yeah. Ken, it, so that it, was the Kenlin kennel is relatively well known. I'm just saying, there's sure. yeah, there's been a few famous dogs along the way. Yes. Yeah, we've been very fortunate in that regard. And then I didn't even know dog shows existed really at the time. But once I went up there, he had had a couple of his dogs out with professional handlers. And then I was exposed to that, mostly at German Shepherd specialty shows. <laughs> and then I would get his dogs attached to me, and I would take them to the shows and do the double handling for the handlers. So that's... Oh, uh, there you go. It didn't take me very long to realize. It's like, geez, these guys travel around the country nonstop going to dog shows. It's like I just kind of gravitated right towards that. You know, by the time I was a... Junior in high school, it's like, well, shit, I already know what I'm going to do. Do I even need to complete this gig? (laughs) (laughs) Talking about school, right? No, no, no. Always get the education. (laughs) Children listening, always get the education. (laughs) Excellent. And Liz, I understand that you were sort of born into the game. Yes, slightly different than Kent. My parents got married, and my mom would rescue every dog she would find. And they would obedience train them. They started out in obedience. They had a golden first who had like 200 scores day and night. Then they got a shepherd, which humbled them. Yes. And they loved it. A shepherd will do that for a person. Yeah. And they they loved it. So I don't know. They were just in obedience. And then we'd go to like our German Shepherd Club in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and started looking at the confirmation dogs and are like, well, that looks fun. So then they just started doing that. And the rest is history. <laughs> and, the, and your kennel name is Marquis, correct? Yeah. Because okay. yeah. we've seen those associated mm-hmm. with Kinlan. So that's, okay, excellent. Yeah. And so talk to us about some of these really fabulous dogs you've had. How do you say this is the one? You know, I think when we breed our dogs, so many people maybe make decent choices about their breeding selection, but then they miss the boat when it comes to the selection part. What's your key to success on selection? At this point in time, I think my thinking has evolved through the years as to, you know, the direction and basically the overall concept that I've been after, you know. I mean, early on when I was going to specialty shows nonstop. And at that point in time, once we went down the road to becoming a professional handler, it was sort of taboo for the handlers to be breeding and exhibiting their own dogs. So I didn't do very much breeding, just maybe a litter every one to two years, right. you know, early on. But that was my motivation when I started was, you know, wanting to breed. So the people that I was mentoring under, the breeders, and I was able to handle dogs for, they normally were one to two litters a year for most of those folks. And they wound up, once they had a litter of puppies and watched them grow, you know, we kept those dogs and worked them and kind of proofed them. So they were older by the time you made, you know, you Mm -hmm. could get a pretty good idea 
which ones were going to be the keepers for the dog shows. But the shepherds, they changed a fair amount so that you'd have to raise them up and work them and they'd have to get their preliminary health clearances. And as they were older, and you know, they would kind of weed themselves out, so to speak, as far as so which ones were the best to keep for the shows. One of the points you're making there, Kent, that's really important is they had the physical capacity to keep and run on more than one puppy at a time. Right, exactly. When I was in my 20s and early 30s, there was a lot of German Shepherd breeders. I mean, there's probably only, as far as the participation at the dog shows now, in 2022, 23, I mean, it's like they're lucky if there's 15% of the numbers as there was in the early 80s through the mid-80s and 90s when I was a young person. And I think it was probably only half as many at that time as 15, 20 years before that. Right. You know, because the guys that I was learning from, the professional handlers, you know, we're like, it takes 25 dogs for a major. I'm in my mid-20s, late-20s, right? And they're telling me about when it was 50 dogs for a major. Right. And how many does it take today? Eight. Yeah. In some of the areas where there's... Where it's minimum. Yes. I mean, there's areas where it's five now. Mm -hmm. Four. Mm -hmm. And so we talk a lot about the nostalgia for the days when we could have the physical room to have 100 dog kennels, run on more than one puppy. We're doing this not in our bedroom, but in large... Maybe you guys can talk to this, both of you. Maybe, Liz, you can talk to this, too, because you're family bred as well. Speak to the idea of what we've lost a little bit, and also how can we attempt to get the quality without the numbers? Do we have coping mechanisms for that? Do you have recommendations on that? I think it needs to be more of a family deal, like... My mom would drag all five of us kids to the dog show. My brothers weren't really into the dog show, but my sister and I were. And so we would show the dogs stuff. They'd go and play and do whatever, you know, at the park or wherever we were. And, I mean, everybody helped at home and stuff. And I think nowadays it's all the video games and all this. And nobody, I don't want I mean, that sounds, nobody wants to work, but... Minus my daughter, who... Right. I think dog kids want to work more than most kids yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> sure. yeah. I don't know what to do to try to make it. It just does need to be more family-orientated. And I think exhibitors need to be more open and friendly to spectators at the dog shows. I mean, even this weekend, it's like... I'm not complaining. Exhibitors are kind of like, oh, I can't get through. I can't do that. Well, if we didn't have these people coming here, they would not be buy a purebred German exactly. Shepherd or whatever. I'm thrilled with the crowd. Yes, I understand yes. it's a pain. I understand yes. it's a challenge for us yeah. to manage our lives, yeah. particularly if you're a handler with 15 dogs. Yeah, trying, trying to get running. I've, I've been ring. there. I've done that. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, as soon as our faces mm-hmm. turn off all of these spectators, absolutely, they don't need to come buy a purebred yeah. dog, man. Yeah. No, exactly. And you've got all the promotion from social media and the celebrities, and now it's the veterinarians and all the people that work at the veterinarians' offices. I mean, there's a very large percentage of those that advocate any type of rescue situation. 
I understand that. I mean, we do some rescue stuff mm-hmm. of our own, and we try to do things well, yeah, for that type breed. of stuff too. But right. I mean, there's a reason that people would buy from a breeder because they've you know known those families of dogs for 25, 30 plus years, and you understand what you're getting with those animals. You know, a lot of times people go and you know pick up some of these other type of dogs that are two, three years old, and then they're boarding kind of in a little bit of a training business as well and they're having all these problems it's like well there's a reason that that dog was you know given up a lot of times in the first place but because it wasn't given the opportunities that a purebred dog from a responsible breeder would have given it raised and and then too i think from the standpoint of some of these german shepherd clubs and just the way things have evolved they've kind of gotten away from the obedience end of things yeah and some of the working aspects of the breed and with our breed german shepherds i mean the reason almost all new people come in and buy a german shepherd believe me is not to go to a dog show and watch it go around in a circle at an akc dog show they want to get it because of the reputation that the dog has for being a good sound family guardian you know they want it to look over their home take care of the things and then you know i mean it's got the lore of the police dog type stuff and you know the different things that go on as far as it being a working dog right so a lot of times people get carried away with the fact that you know i mean if the only criteria that you would have to select and keep a dog is just because of its like anatomical features and not what's going on inside that dog's head and the paying attention to the health and the strength and the fundamentals of what's in that dog's mind you know i mean it gets to be a little bit problematic yeah and then you know what you were talking before when people would have a hundred dogs in their kennel most of the breeders that i grew up with and knew i mean they didn't really have that many dogs and they were keeping them back but if you have kennels with that many dogs and don't work those dogs you're not able to proof them in order to see what's actually in that dog's mind and there's no way to be able to raise those kind of animals and i have the same problems ourselves when we have too many dogs it's like you know, you've got to get them out and socialize them and work them in order to see what you've actually have. You know, okay, to go so, forward so your point a- is there are advantages to what we're doing and how we're doing it today with fewer numbers. Yeah. You're still keeping some dogs, but you're not keeping all of them. That's a good thing. That's but, a positive. Yeah. It's yeah. just there's a lot less breeders. Yeah, exactly. I- well, and when there's a lot more people interested, say I could go around in years past then it's like between the dozen clients that i would have i mean they're having a couple of dozen litters of puppies in a year's time they would hold back what they thought would be the best one or two for themselves and then they let me pick from the other ones they'd sell them to me at a lot less money than what they would even sell a companion dog for i'd trade them a few handling fees for the puppy i'd take those dogs home and i'd work them i'd sell them to somebody else that is looking for a dog like that and then i've got kind of a pretty good gig because then they're getting their dogs out with people they've got theirs we're, we're handling them all and as those breeders aged out 
and kind of retired and passed away, the good ones, it, it kind of became a necessity for ourselves to, to wind up breeding those dogs that we wanted to even continue going to the shows with mm. them. Right. So it wound up almost by force of nature. Cycle, yeah. we're going from one litter every other year to, you know, three and four litters in a year's time where you're doing it. And then I started, oh gosh, at least 20 years or so ago, more so. I guess my first time to Germany was in 1990. And I started kind of watching a lot of those dogs and learning the concept and the way that they would kind of run the breeding stuff and their dog shows over there. And they placed, when it would come time for their national, so to speak, in the Seeger show, I mean, a lot of the reasons that they would pick the top dogs and put them in orders, it was for the genetics and the producing ability on those dogs. I mean, it wasn't one of those deals where they all showed up at the dog show that day and the person in the middle of the ring was going to judge them and place them in order. You know, that guy that was going to judge that dog show wanted to see those dogs three or four times over the course of the year, and he wanted to see them in different venues, different coat, and he wanted to see the progeny, and he wanted to see the scores, the Schutzen scores, Mm. you know, so Mm -hmm. that they would have an idea of their ability to do the tracking, protection, and the obedience work, and they wanted to see that scorebook, and they wanted to see what type of scores that they could do under certain conditions off of their home training field. So you go to that show, and it's like, God, I would have put that fourth dog would have been my first dog, you know, and that seventh dog, he should have been in third. Well, it was more to do with they wanted to have a certain, it was the dog's ability to produce, and it was more with how they would bring into the genetics to keep the gene pool as open as possible so you didn't wind up breeding yourself into corners and not having enough overall genetics to keep things rolling forward. That is fascinating. So the judging decisions included more than just what they saw in the ring. It was the full package. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. and then, you know, I mean, once they would make those decisions and go through, I mean, you'd have like a half a dozen people from the SV club that were on the board of directors. I mean, that judge would go through and he'd give an explanation as to why those different dogs were in the orders that they were. And a lot of it would have to do with because of the progeny groups and the way the genetics, the sires and the dams, because they didn't want they they didn't want to go year after year after year with the top half a dozen dogs all being bred from the same git because pretty soon you're not going to have anywhere to go. They'd want to open it up and see what combinations worked the best and how it would line up with different areas. So that was one of the things that we would always try to keep in mind is like we're not going to do this breeding today just to try to get a show winner. You've got a concept in mind as to what that animal is supposed to ultimately be like, how you're going to get there, but then what step you're going to take three generations down the right. road. I mean, where are you going to go right. with that? You have to continue on. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I always liked as far as that went, and I've always tried to do that within my own dogs, was... I wanted to be able to look at several different animals and have them all kind of fit that same mold if you can get it. And it doesn't always work that way, but I mean, that's what you have to go toward. More of a phenotype than a genotype breeding program. Right, because that's one of the things when they would judge the kennel groups over Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. 
you would have to have at least five animals presented in the kennel group, and they would want the most consistency and type, but it had to be from different sires and dams. Oh, interesting. You know, so that way your kennel would have a... It's uniform. Yeah, you'd have better mm-hmm. uniformity. And, I mean, ultimately, if you're trying to breed those dogs to as close to the standard as you can, if you're looking at your best breeding animals, well, they're going to be pretty damn close to the standard, you know. Right. I mean, if you're trying to get those kind of animals right. with still trying to keep with our breed, you know, from the standpoint of you want that structure is very important and the gating and whatnot and the temperaments on those animals. I mean, so you're going to wind up going to some extremes here and there in certain areas just to try to keep things in balance, so to speak. Because I think overall that word balance is key to almost everything, whether it's temperament, structure, I like all of it. And I agree. Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you. To make sense out of everyday things. To add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box. To bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. Pure Dog Talk patrons... Support the work we do here by contributing to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for the generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons get direct access, rare opportunities, and tons of perks. And I tell you what, 23 is looking to be a busy year. We have three patrons retreats. Okay, so this is the direct access and tons of perks three patrons retreats planned throughout the year. These festive get-togethers combine learning, good food, new friends, and a dog show, right? I'll be there leading handling courses, breeding courses, and some thought-provoking conversations along the way. Join our patrons now so you can be part of the best community in dogs. Visit www.puredogtalk.com dot com backslash patron for details talk to me about because i think this is a great breed to use as an example on this the heritability of temperament and the mind and the nerves that we talk about in the shepherds talk about that and how important it is in your estimation in your breeding program i've seen you show your dogs those are sane animals. <laughs> they are not as edgy as some we have seen. Try to have that that way anyway. I think within that breed, I think sometimes people use the word aloofness as a little bit of an excuse to have them to be a little edgy and not so accepting, so to speak. I mean, to me, like, aloof means it doesn't need to just indiscriminately like everybody you know it's like i can take you or leave you you know but it's still supposed to be sound-minded and comfortable and confident in the surroundings that it's in and i've seen that happen a lot of different Mm -hmm. times i mean if those animals aren't opened up to the environment and shown things and worked with properly i mean you can take a genetically sound dog and have it 
And I know everybody says, if that dog was sound, it wouldn't matter what you do to it. I think that's just bullshit. You I know? agree. Sometimes it does, sometimes it'll work like that. But to me, it's like more often than not, it really doesn't. And then if you have dogs that are environmentally stifled, <clears throat> And then all of a sudden you take them out and they don't have any worldly experience and they have a couple of bad things happen and then somebody starts jerking on the lead. I mean, you ruin that dog fast. And it's that time before that animal's like 16 weeks old. I mean, if you start doing things with them as soon as they're able to start eating from your hand and whatnot and start doing different things and taking them and separating them from the litter mates and showing them stuff, Carry on more on that topic, because I think that people lose sight of this really easily. They're like, it's pretty. I'm going to breed it. Yeah. It's crazy. It's okay. It's pretty. Yeah, it moves, but it well, moves. I'll tell you what. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes over the years breeding the dogs that I thought the reason they probably acted a certain way was because of the fact that they were kennel dogs and they hadn't had any exposure and then some of the exposure that they did have it's like jesus i mean i don't know why you would expect it to act any different i mean it's like you know take a 10 month old dog that's never been off the property and then put it in the car take it to the dog show hand it to a complete stranger (laughs) they go inside the ring the judge is walking up to it the owner starts calling it the dog flips out a little bit and it's like well you know i couldn't expect that dog to want to do anything else you know so then you wind up because of the way that that dog is and whatnot, from the standpoint of, I'd cut that dog a lot of slack. Because right. how in the world would you possibly know if that would have been a kind of a sound-minded dog or not? You know, I mean, you wouldn't have no way. But like I said, some of the mistakes that I made with the breeding, when you have issues with temperament, it's like, well, if you use that dog a couple of times and you get progeny, that it's like, well, obviously that wasn't necessarily all of the case. And, right. and yeah. I've had dogs now, or even dogs that I've handled for other clients and whatnot. When I look through those pedigrees and stuff, I mean, it's like, well, that's I've obvious. had my hands on a lot of those dogs, you know? I mean, if I didn't breed them, I mean, I've had a lot of them in my kennel that I've trained and shown and had my hands on them, so I get a fairly good idea of maybe what's going on in some of those minds. And I think as breeders, so we're thinking about this from the perspective of breeders, when we're making breeding decisions, I say this all the time, and I'm hearing you say it, the most important thing you can do when you make breeding decisions is have your hands on the dogs. Yeah, yeah. As many of the dogs in your pedigree as you can get your hands on, or at least talk to the people who did. That's what I was just going to say. I mean, that's kind of impossible sometimes, but I mean, at least if you can talk to some people that know those dogs or at least have seen progeny out of those dogs. Unfortunately, like I said now, it's like, There's a limited amount of breeders now in this country. How do we make it? I mean, this is literally the $64 million question. Nobody has the answer for it. How do we make it interesting? How do we make people want to do this? Because it's not easy. It's hard work. It's not always particularly lucrative. It's not like you're going to get rich doing it. There's no actual prestige. Now people are trying to kill us over it. So how do we talk people into doing this? I think this is a good example this weekend. I mean, like having these dog shows where you do some advertising and some marketing. People love dogs. There's absolutely no question about that. And, I mean, you get them attached to a dog. 
local clubs putting on matches and having those yeah, obedience, having you know, it. having some fun days, you know, for the kids to get out and print them up some ribbons, you know, and, and have like little mock dog shows and give them ribbons and make it like a fun event and be welcoming from the standpoint of the kennels and breeders and the local dog clubs that bring those things in. And like when I would go to Germany and i hang out with some people over there there's like so many dog clubs because they have to title all those dogs with doing the bite work and the tracking and the obedience so they've got clubhouses every 25 miles there's another clubhouse you know wow and then normally they've got a building rented and there's a bar and there's a keg and there's refrigerators and they're working dogs and they're having a beer and the kids are, you know, kids it's are there. It's a social event. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's more of a lifestyle than it is, mm-hmm. you know, just... Well, and you need sound animals. Exactly. So I mean, if you have a new person that has an unsound animal, they're not going to have fun in their dog show ring. No, I mean, then the breeders have to stand behind those dogs. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of times things don't work out. And I know those people get attached to the dogs and whatnot, but you have to stand behind them. And from the standpoint, it's like, you know, give them another puppy. And then make sure when you've got somebody that has some interest in this type of stuff, make sure they get a sound one and don't be and trying to... a good to, one. A good, I was just going to say, one. sell them a good dog. Yes. I mean, like, you know... This makes me crazy. It truly makes me crazy. The people that have someone interested, like an actual, they've got a live one. They've got, yeah, right? Yeah. And they sell them a pet. Yes. Makes yes. me crazy. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, we all know how many times that we've had our fingers crossed walking around hoping that that dog's going to turn out good. And a lot of times they're certainly not turning out as you know, you got to have a lot of luck on your side. So if you know from the get-go... I've seen that happen a bunch of times, and it's happened to ourselves a lot, too. You know, I'm not saying it doesn't. And when I talk about some of these things, it's like I'm certainly not trying to sit there and say, well, we haven't done it, it's not happened to us. It happens a lot, right? But, I mean, it's like you're supposed to learn as you go right. forward. I was it's just going like to say, helping, <laughs> helping people learn from our experience yeah. is the whole point of the podcast. Yeah. So this is yeah. good. Gotcha. This is excellent. Because... There's a lot of people out in the world, you've met them, we've all met them, who don't have a good mentor. And so the idea of pure dog talk is literally to provide them with a mentor in their phone. Sure. Because I can sit down and talk to people like you who have a lot of knowledge and share it with them. And that's the goal. I mean, that's the reason that I wound up for myself, you know, being able to be successful as a handler, you know, and as a breeder was because at the time when I got into it, and from a business side of things, I mean, within 10 years of myself getting started as a handler, there was like a half a dozen handlers that retired, you know, so I wound up with a fair amount of their business. And Jim Moses was, that was the time when he was showing Manhattan, and then he went from Manhattan to a couple of other ones, and then Mystique, well, he wasn't going to specialty shows anymore. He had seen me at one of those Upper Peninsula, Michigan, Albury dog shows, and he's like, you need to wind up going to specialty shows. You know, I'm showing a couple of those balanced little dogs at the Albury shows at the time, and it's like, well... I didn't really know what was going on anyway, so I started talking and thinking more about that. And it, I think within 
a couple of years, he was still dealing with all those breeders. And so then right. I started getting a lot of dogs from his right. clients to right. show at the specialties. Right. And that helped us out tremendously. And the Fords in Ohio, they had some big side gating kind of real good dogs. And they had some very famous dogs who were super breeders. And mm-hmm. a couple of those that I was like, super infatuated with were I'd kind of gotten lucky and, and I guess it was 92 I had an American bred bitch that wound up going all the way to she was the U.S. Grand Victrix that year from Ooh. the American bred class wow. and, and I had bred her myself so that did wind up giving me like a lot of credibility with right. a lot of people so I started getting a lot more business at that time but my point of that was if it wasn't for all of those people that I would bug the shit out of them, basically, too, trying to ask all these questions and do things. And I'd be in the ring, and I'd run over and say, what that dog look like going around? What do you think I should do different? You know, this and that, you know, right, the right, other thing. Right. Trying to make them look better. But they were all, because of the interest, mm-hmm. they would be very helpful. I think that's key, you know. I mean, you see somebody with a little bit of interest, Jesus, I mean, help them. That piece right there. Yeah. I'm framing that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm framing that one. Oh, my God. All right. Well, you guys, thank you so much. I really appreciate every time somebody will sit down and let me pick their brains. Yeah, well, we appreciate you taking the time to do that and trying to do things to, you know, help the sport continue on in the fashion that it does. Because, like, Lizzie's daughter, in her early 20s, she has, like, a ton of interests and wants to do dogs. And, I mean, you know, from the junior handlers that are out there, you can see there is a lot of interest, you know. You just have to... We just got to be nice, keep them in the fold, get them trained up, educated, all the stuff, right? Yeah. Good dogs. Yeah, yeah good dogs. Right. That'd help. Yes. All right. Well, thanks, you, you guys. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys... This podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.